Hey guys, welcome to the National Deer Association's Deer Season 365 podcast. I'm your host, Brian Grossman, and today we'll be talking with a living legend in the archery community, uh, Mr. Warren Womack of Louisiana. Uh, Warren has been chasing whitetails now for over 50 years and has been keeping a, just a meticulously detailed hunting journal almost the entire time. Uh, so we're going to dive into that journal and, and let Warren share some some pretty cool bow hunting memories with us as well as discuss his unique strategy of hunting feed trees to consistently kill deer on public lands across the South. And he has killed a lot of them. Uh, So this is a great episode. I know you guys are going to enjoy hearing from Warren. Uh, I always enjoy talking to him. He's just a, uh, a wealth of knowledge and, and just an overall great guy. So, but before we get started, this week's episode is brought to you by our friends at Vortex Optics. Hey guys, if you're in the market for a new pair of binoculars, maybe a new rifle scope, maybe a spotting scope, any kind of optics for hunting, give the folks at Vortex a look at vortexoptics.com. Not only are you going to get a a fine product, but all their optics come with an unconditional lifetime guarantee so that you you can't beat that. So be sure to check those guys out. I've uh, got a few things going on right now at the National Deer Association. Uh, we I know we've been telling you guys weekly about our our special membership offer for podcast listeners, and that's that's still in effect. You can go over to our website at deerassociation.com, uh, click on that join or renew link, and use the promo code podcast, and that's going to get you $5 off an annual membership, and you're going to get a free NDA cap as well. So uh, it's a great offer. A lot of you have taken advantage of that, and we appreciate that support. But we're also running a uh, another membership special now. Just this one's for for anybody, not necessarily podcast listeners. We're we're advertising this one kind of across the board, but uh, this one's a little different. We're working with our friends at First Light, and you can join the the National Deer Association for a year. You'll get a free NDA trucker cap in First Light's new Spectre camo as well as a $25 First Light gift certificate that you can use you know, on any of their First Light apparel. So it's, uh, it's about $90 worth of, uh, worth of materials there, worth of gear for $75. And uh, a lot of you have jumped on that offer. And uh, if you're interested in that, you can check that out at deerassociation.com slash First Light. Or you can go to our, just go to our homepage at deerassociation.com and look for the big First Light membership banner right there at the top of the page and, and click on that. Either way, uh, you can check out all the details on that. And one more item before we jump on the phone here with Warren. Uh, we have a special fundraiser going on right now where we're auctioning off a six-day rifle whitetail hunt for one hunter with Dale McKinnon, Alberta Guide and Outfitter in Alberta, Canada. Uh, this is for the first week of November for this season uh, special someone actually bought this on an auction previously and they donated it back to us so all the proceeds raised from this are going to go directly towards NDA's mission to ensure the future of wild deer wildlife habitat and hunting so if that's something that interests you man again just a, a once in a lifetime hunt uh, in Alberta Canada be sure to check that out on our website at deerassociation.com Alberta or again, you can just go to our, our homepage at deerassociation.com and look for that slide, that big slide on our homepage for this special whitetail rifle hunt. Uh, you can't miss it. So be sure to check that out. If it's something that interests you, put your bid in. 
the whole thing's only running for eight days. And by the time you hear this, we're going to be a few, at least a few days into that. So time is short. Get your bids in now if that's something you want to you wanna partake in. So with that, guys, we'll jump on the phone here with Warren and talk about his 50 years of bow hunting success. All right, guys, I got Warren Womack on the line. Warren, how you doing? Doing fine, Brian. How about you? I'm doing well. I'm I'm doing well. As as we record this, it's uh, I'm just a, a few weeks out from from Georgia deer season and opening up here, so uh, all is well with the world at, at the moment. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's an exciting time. I, I think I got everything kind of ready and prepared for deer season, but but you never know until that that opening day gets here. <laughs> Well, you know, I always considered it a marathon instead of a sprint anyway. So, you know, you want to be as prepared as you can be. But it's not always happens the way you want to, but you always got time to make up for the difference in it. That's right. Yeah, I got I got to keep myself in check there because I put, I put so much emphasis on that, you know, that opening weekend. And like you said, you got – it's a long season. There's plenty of time time in there to make stuff happen. So Yeah, it's usually not as best when you first start anyway. It's kind of – kind of starts off kind of sparse and, and leaving a lot to be desired. <laughs> Time goes by, the acorns get better, and just deer start moving better. It gets a little cooler. It just makes it a whole lot better all around. So can't put too much emphasis on that first one or two weeks. It's really the hardest of the whole season. That's right. Well, speaking of that, are, are, you, are you ready on your end for deer season? I'm as far behind as I've ever been, I guess you could say. <laughs> I've had a lot of complications this summer. has been an unusual summer for me, and I've got real behind on, on just about everything, but I'm not worried about it. Like I said, you know, it's, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint, and I, I got all my equipment where I can just, on a moment's notice, I can I can be ready to hunt probably in 30 minutes, go get in a tree. So I'm not gonna, too concerned with it. The conditioning part is, is the biggest deal, but no matter how good a shape I seem to be in before the season starts, it always takes about two weeks to get to reach potential, you know. Yeah. Uh, get adjusted and acclimated to being a, in a tree and and all that. So, just I just don't worry about it too much. It's all going to come together. That's right. Well, now with your style of hunting, which which we'll get into a whole lot deeper later in the podcast, but do you put a lot of effort into preseason scouting, or is most years just kind of based on past experience and then you know, looking for that most recent sign during season. Yeah, you know, I, I'm I'm 77 years old now, so definitely my hunting style has changed and, and uh, evolved through, through all those years and everything. I'm not near about the condition hunter I once was. Can't cover the ground like I used to and everything. I still try to do about the same thing, but just uh, age and gravity, you know, it really takes a toll on get older, so... I just try to do the best I can, but it used to be real important to me. But during the summer months, I used to study topo maps and and uh, look for potential places, uh, look for places that had potential for having deer on them certain times of the year. And then during the weekends, I would actually go to those places that I saw on the map and walk them out and see if there, if there was some potential in them. So uh, I don't do that much anymore. I've, I've kind of weaned myself away from hunting public land that I love to do for so many years, and I'm just hunting a couple of small private places. I, I used to make four-day hunts. That was my key to my success. I'd go somewhere and, and stay three to four days, at least three or maybe more, 
and, uh, and and you have time to figure it out and find what you're looking for and set up on it and take advantage of what comes in. But uh, I just can't do that anymore. My wife needs me at home at night. Besides, I done got settled where I like being at home at night. Too, <laughs> so I'm not going off like I once was. So I'm basically down to hunting a couple of small places that's within 30 minutes of my house. Okay. Well, like I said, we'll, we'll dive a whole lot deeper into to hunting strategy here in a little bit. I guess before we get too far down the road here, if you would, can you just kind of uh, tell the folks a little bit about yourself and maybe, you know, how, how you got introduced to the outdoors? Yeah, well, my name is Warren Womack, and uh, I married my high school sweetheart while I was in the Navy. And uh, we, we got raised a pretty good-sized family. We got kids, and grandkids, and great-grandkids. A wonderful family. I love them all dearly. And but my interest in in hunting started off real early. It was kind of like a family tradition. My mother had six brothers. They all hunted. My dad and his brother. He was. They were hunters. And uh, that's all I knew coming up. But it was all small game hunting back when I was younger. And I actually didn't get into deer hunting until I was twenty four years old. Yeah. Well, was that just out of? I mean, just lack of lack of opportunity. Is that what? kept you from from deer hunting up you know before that point exactly back in those days we're talking about the 60s and everything early 60s late 50s early 60s uh, mid 50s even uh they didn't have any deer in the areas where i lived uh you had to drive up to the northeast part of louisiana along the mississippi river or go into mississippi up on that round that mississippi river to take advantage of deer you know just the deer sighting, it, it was as uncommon as a UFO sighting. <laughs> and it just it wasn't here, but a small game hunt coming up. You know, it was a big deal. Squirrel and rabbit hunting. My dad was a big coon hunter. And uh, it just a family tradition, but it was all small game until I got out of the Navy and uh, became about 24. And then I had an uncle. I had a lease over in Texas. He lived in Texas and had a lease. And, and uh, his brother and I, which was another uncle, we made a trip over there. I made my first deer hunt there. And then I, I was just fascinated by deer. And, and it just kind of took off and uh, served like a four-year apprenticeship once I really got into it to figure out what, what I need to do and how to put deer on them. There wasn't any educational uh, guys back then. No, you know, there was no internet or Facebook or YouTube or magazines. They had three magazines, and you might be lucky to see a bow hunting article. <laughs> or deer hunting yeah. two times a year in, in each one of them. So it was just a learn by myself, figure it out by myself, uh, four-year apprenticeship program. But after I put so much effort into it and time into it during those four years, I was pretty much ready to go by the fifth year. I was I was, I was was hitting the ground running and doing it what I thought was the right way. Yeah. So when you say four-year apprenticeship, you're just talking about self-taught, or I mean, did you actually have somebody kind of guiding you there? It was about three, maybe four of us guys started at the same time, but we didn't really hunt together. You know, we was just kind of on our own and, and, and uh, maybe make up one or two hunts together, but we talked about it a lot. It was just, and I'm talking about the bow hunting part of it, of course, but it was just, I just had to figure it out myself, you know, and, and uh, I had a few little magazine articles that I, I, I devoured when I'd get them. I'd read cover to cover on them a bunch of times and just, started putting it together and it took me about four years just so i could consistently kill deer every year with a bow and is that that's how you started out with a bow you just strictly strictly bow hunted 
Well, the first deer I ever killed was in 1968, November 1968, and it was a five-point. I killed it with a 30-30 lever action. <laughs> and then my second deer was a, was a bow kill, and my third one was a gun, and fourth one was a bow, and then three more with a gun, and two with a bow, and another one with a gun. And by then, it was the next, I don't know, I'm looking at my journal now as I'm talking, the next 30, I guess, was with a bow. It didn't take me long to realize it was a lot more fun to kill one with a bow than it was a gun. And I I really didn't keep much records on my journal with the, with the gun as much as I did with the bow. The bow, I wrote everything down after a while. But uh, I was primarily a, a bow hunter that liked to gun hunt occasionally. Okay, I got you. Now, I assume, I guess back then, you know, you were... You were a traditional bow hunter, I guess. There wasn't there wasn't any compound bows back when you started. So, did you continue to be a traditional bow hunter? Uh, actually, I I didn't I didn't see a bow a compound bow until 1975, and I, I was I started off with a recurve, of course, and, and uh, I had your choice between a recurve and a longbow, and I chose a recurve. And in 1975, uh, three days before I was going on to Colorado, a mule deer and elk hunt had a guy local to Baton Rouge named Ken Robeek. He had a little backyard archery shop there that he piddled with, and he called me. And he says, Warren, he said, I got three compound bows come in. He said, I'm taking one. Got the other one sold. I want to know if you wanted this one, the last one. And I'd never seen one before. I'd seen pictures <laughs> of them seen before and everything. I said, heck yeah, I want that thing. I'm curious about it. So I went and picked it up. Spent the next two days uh, trying to get it set up with some sight pins. Back then, we shot recurves with sight pins. You know, my early days, the first, I don't know, seven years, I guess, before I, before I got that compound bow, I always had a sight pin on my recurve bow, which everybody did that I knew of back then. And uh, so I got my compound bow set up, shot it two days, and third day I took off Colorado. I didn't even bring my recurve, which I had been shooting off summer with about five pins on it so I could shoot out 45 yards you know and uh but uh that's that's where I got introduced to a compound bow and, and I hunted with it I forget how many years I think it's 18 years all the way through the 92-93 season and during the after the 92-3 season I decided I was going to go back to a, a traditional bow which is a, my, my choice was a recurve and I picked one up and I I made a uh, commitment. I said, you know, I was killing a lot of deer. I'd kill 175 deer with a compound. And I, I made a commitment. I said, even if I miss every deer I shoot at, <laughs> I'm going to stay with this comp- this recurve again the whole season. And I didn't put any sights on it this time. I shot it bare bow. And uh, season, I started off really, really, really uh, discouraged. And I went on an early bow hunt in South Carolina in August, August the 15th it started, which is you know, our season will start till October the 1st. And I went over there and I missed three rag bucks with it. And man, I was out of my, my commitment big time. I said, I don't know if I really want to do this, but I did. I stuck with it. And when the season was over, I'd kill seven bucks and two does with it. So I said, well, I'm stuck and I'm here and I'm glad. So I, I've been shooting a recurve ever since. <laughs> Well, I tell you, you and, and Robert Carter kind of inspired me last year. To, I, I'd had a recurve I played around with for a little while, but uh, y'all y'all kind of inspired me to finally practice with it enough to get out, and uh, I, I was able to kill my first deer with one last year. And oh, that's awesome. I'm proud. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. It was, uh, man, I'd already killed a good good buck with my compound, but 
I, I don't think I was any more shook up than I was <laughs> with that uh, recurve and that dough. You know, it's just a dough, but uh, I, I was tore up and I, I definitely see the appeal. I haven't put my compound down just yet and committed fully, but uh, it's there, there's something about it for sure that, uh, you know, makes me makes me want to do it more. I think it definitely is. I, I appreciated my my uh, trad bow kills a whole lot more than I do my wheel bow kills. I mean, it's just, it's, and I'll tell you something else about it, too. I don't have anything against anybody shooting a compound. My best hunting buddy, hunting buddy he always shot a compound and still does. And uh, I, I like to say I shot him for about 18 years. But uh, it's so much more fun shooting a trad bow. You, you take that compound bow out and... Uh, it, you uh you shoot about eight or ten arrows with it, and you say, well, that's good. You got those sight pins, those compound bows. Like I said, I hadn't shot one since 1993, but uh, I, I know they've improved a lot since then, you know. But you shoot them a few times, practicing, and you're done, you know. Eight or ten shots, you say, well, my pins are set, good. But you get that, you get that trad bow out there, and you start shooting it, and you don't want to quit. And the reason is when you make a good shot, you can't wait to do it again. So you can kind of uh, celebrate making a perfect shot. And when you make a bad shot, you can't wait to shoot again too because you want to try to do better. So you look <laughs> yeah. out there, you just shoot, shooting and shooting, which is more fun, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I tell you, though, I got a, you know, I, I practiced a lot out there in the yard and, and thought I had it down pretty good where I wouldn't have any problems, you know, tw- 20 yards in the end. I wasn't going to shoot at anything over 20 yards and really wanted it 15 in the end. But, uh, I tell you when that moment of truth came, it, it was, uh, I had a whole lot harder time hitting my mark than I did, uh, out there in the yard. It was, it was definitely like, so you don't have that, the sights and everything to, to rely on. It's, uh, it's, it's, you know, people say nobody shoots instinctively, but it's an instinctive uh, procedure you takes to shoot a trad bow. You know, it's just, you know, for me, I'm kind of a, uh, uh, what do I want to call it? A, a snap shooter. That's the word I was looking for. I'm a snap shooter. And I, I shoot really, really quick. And when I start trying to aim, I don't know how to aim, and I'll, I'll miss every time. <laughs> I, I just look at where I want the air to go and, and just go ahead and shoot that thing quickly worried about it it usually does pretty good i just wish i could shoot as good as robert carter does yeah robert robert is well i don't know how good of a shot he is but i know he's he's a good fella i know that he's a great guy he's one of my heroes for sure him and chris spikes both yeah but hey one of the reasons i wanted to get you on here we're like i said we're going to talk hunting strategy some too but anybody that happens to to follow you on instagram knows that you know you, you share a lot of great memories and a lot of the, a lot of great details about those memories. Uh, how is it that that you're able to remember so much about these these past hunts that you've been on, past experiences? Well, uh, my uh, uncle I mentioned a while ago, the, my mother's baby brother. He was 11 years older than I was. He was a he was a great hunter and a great outdoorsman and everything. And and uh, when I first got interested in deer hunting, he could he could tell that I was gonna really get into it. And he he encouraged me to to write stuff down about my hunts to remember them take pictures and uh and of course it wasn't video wasn't around there and that was before video and everything but he just encouraged me to to kind of keep a journal he didn't call it a journal back then but that's what it amounted to 
and I had a, a co-worker I worked with on the job, and he would go out to Texas every year, and he'd bring back pictures of the deer he killed and the camp life and stuff like that. And it uh, really impressed me, and he encouraged me to, to do that. And I, I just took what they suggested I do and encouraged me to do, and I took it to a whole different level. <laughs> and I, I didn't get as detailed as I became later on at first. But uh, at first, I just mostly kept up with my boat shots. Every time I shoot a deer, I write the story the shot down and kept up like that. And, of course, I started keeping uh, documents on my kills. I, I would... On my kills, I would write down the uh, the number one, the, the numerical number of the deer and the numerical number of the bow or gun, whatever it was, bow or gun kill. And I, I would put my, my writings up with black ink for deer, for gun, and red ink for bow. And for what I'd kill, what I would write down to register all that was, I'd put the date, the time, what it was, what, what type of deer it was, uh, uh, whatever, how many points it had or doe or whatever. I put the method I was hunting, write it down. I put a, how far the shot was and how far the travel was in the area I was hunting. I just, that's where I, I basically started. And then from there, I started realizing the value of it. And after about uh, eight years, I really got into detail and started taking a lot, a lot of details on it. Let me see if I can find a page for that real quick. I call it my season summaries. Like like I said, the first eight years I just kept up with the what season it was and and uh, the kills I'd made for season summary. And then I started getting in, into details with things. And I started keeping up with the what year it was, what the season was, how many days I'd hunted, how many morning hunts, how many evening hunts, the total hunts, how many deer I saw during the season, how many hunts I made without a deer sighting. And my hours on stands, and of course I kept up my my season kills on it as a season summary. And I've done that for for fifty fifty three years. See what the records I keep, and I think I can go back find different stats that I hadn't thought of to do. And somebody was asking me a question about the best time of the day that I found it was to kill a deer or see deer or whatever. Well, I I, I couldn't pinpoint how many I'd seen during the different time periods or how many I'd shot at or what, but I got I could pinpoint how many I'd killed. And like from I got it broke down in the first hour of the daylight, every hour of daylight it is, like from six to seven, seven to eight, so forth, all the way to seven to eight in the afternoon and evening I should say. And you might find it interesting, but uh, I, from six to seven I've killed sixteen deer. From 7 to 8 in the morning, I've killed 40. From 8 to 9, I've killed 28. 9 to 10, I've killed 24. From 10 to 11, I've killed 14. From 11 to 12, I've killed 4. 12 noon to 1, I've killed 5. From 1 to 2, I've killed 4. From 2 to 3, I've killed 5. And 3 to 4, I've killed 26. 4 to 5, I've killed 58. 5 to 6, 94. 6 to 7, 47. And 7 to 8, I've killed 10. So that's a new category I just come up with recently from answering a question <laughs> yeah that's pretty neat that, yeah that's that's kind of what you would expect from a graph if you you know were plotting out when you would expect to to see and and kill deer during the different times of the day so that's that's pretty neat to be able to actually lay that out with with actual kills from your past so yeah uh, and, you know that 
I count all the deer I saw during that time that I didn't shoot at. Or, you know, I, I've, I'm hard to say, but uh, I'm not ashamed of it, but I've missed a lot of deer through my on years too so you know I, that's not counting for those either right i want to tell you uh, this is i got my bow hunts i got each year i got the number of hunts i make how many shots i took how many hits how many times that's what i want to tell you about how many bow hunts i've made i made as of the end of the 2020 2021 20, 20, season i've made 2131 bow hunts and i ain't gonna tell you how many shots uh, <laughs> i took <laughs> but uh, but I found 280 out of all that. <laughs> anyway, that, but tell people you're only uh, challenged by your imagination on what you can record. And if you start recording, you'll you'll see you'll find more stuff you want to take advantage of. And my my journal consists of of writings. I write a story about every hunt I make. I've been doing that since I got a computer. When I come in from a hunt, I write. If I make a three-day hunt or whatever, I'll write down each hunt, whatever happened, three days of of uh, interest, stuff that I find interesting, I'll write it down about my whole hunt. And if, on my kills, I got a, a, a written kill story about every kill, which is 387 stories. And I, I've got a full story on it. I'm posting some on Facebook right now, which, which is a kind of an example of what I've got done. Now, do you have all this organized on a on a computer now, or is some of this in in yeah, written it took notebooks? Me, it took and... me about fifteen years to 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 uh, transfer what I had in handwriting, what I wanted to transfer in handwriting to computer. But I got all the stories on computer. I got them all handwritten in a book too. Except now, I started uh, just printing out the story I got on computer and, t- and pasting it in the same notebook that I got those other stories in. And using all that stuff I've, I've recorded, I can go back and fill in gaps, you know. If somebody asks me a question, it don't take me long to find it. If you ask me, give me a date during deer season, I could probably find a deer that I killed during that date. And and, and uh, the possibility, I might not be able to do it every time, but I'm, I think I could. Or you just pick a number and I tell you what, some information about that, a number from 1 to 387, <laughs> and I details. On on uh, on and what, whatever number you give me about the deer I kill, so yeah, it's kind of interesting. I can oh, between the pictures and the writings and the and the and the uh, stats, I can I can answer a question pretty quick about any deer. Well, let, let's uh, let's say uh, deer number two oh six. Then what what can you tell me about deer number two oh six? I guess bow kill, however you got it, however you have it figured out, but right. Deer kill. I was going to bow kill, but I see what's been. All right, deer, deer kill two hundred six was a was a bow kill. It was my one hundred fifty fourth bow kill. It was January the second, nineteen ninety. Shot the deer at eight forty a.m. It was a six point, and I, I was set up on a nut all oak tree, and it was a thirty yard shot. And the deer traveled three hundred forty five yards, and I was hunting in the National Wildlife Refuge in Mississippi. <laughs> that's that's good. That's quick, huh? Yeah, it is. Now, actually, uh, let's go a little further back. And actually, seeing you just posted this one, uh, it might have been today on Facebook, but it was Bow Kill, I think, twenty number 27. All right. What, num- what can you tell us about that one? That was October 16th, 1977, at 2 o'clock p.m. There's a doe. And I was, my method of hunting was I was walking 
and it was a twenty yard shot. The deer traveled eighty yards, and I was on a, a club that was on the Louisiana side river, but half of it was Mississippi, and I was on the Mississippi side. <laughs> that's that's neat, man. I, I that's one one of my my big regrets, I guess, from my my hunting uh, my career, I guess, for lack of lack of a better term, but. All the years I hunted there, I, I wish I'd done a better job of, of keeping that kind of stuff. I've, I did a little bit back early on and then just got away from it. And then here, the last two years, I've kept uh, what, not as detailed as yours, but I've kept pretty detailed notes on every hunt as far as, you know, the hours I was out there, what I saw and, you know, which direction they came from, that kind of stuff. And if I killed something and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and, and man, I'm already... Like I said, I wish I'd done it a long time ago, but I'm I'm enjoying already just being able to go back those couple of years and and look at look at those hunts and and see what you know when I saw deer and what areas and that kind of stuff. Right. It's um, it's it's not only it's not only good just to to be able to look at that and reminisce, but I'm assuming all that data along the way probably has helped you be more successful on on hunts as well, hasn't it? Oh, absolutely. You know, I can. You know, without without doing this it, it, through the years, I mean, I've been doing this about fifty five years, and uh, there's no way you can kill that many deer and remember them all. You, <laughs> no. you, you'll, you'll forget them, and those are great memories, man. You're taking taking an animal's life, and I like to honor that animal by taking pictures with it, video show and tell. Since 1991, I've got a video for every deer season since 1991, deer and turkey season. Showing a lot of stuff on video that that to remember those hunts. But when I when I kill a deer, for me, I'm honoring him by I write a story about how he come in and how I killed him and what it meant to him. And you know, and 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 the way I classify him is give him a number. You know, I, I ain't got enough names to name him deer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I give him a number. You know, number one through three hundred eighty-seven. You know, it's just as plain as that. But I I can go back through my pictures and I can look at a picture and I say, well, that's Bokeel number, whatever, you know, and I go look and I can read the story about it. And if I didn't remember just looking at the picture, instantly it puts me right back there. Like I'm there right now. I can remember where I was at. I can remember the surroundings. I can remember even stuff that I didn't even write down or record. You know, it's, it's just, it's just a great memory saver. So what it is not now, do I go back every day and look at all this stuff? No, I don't ever do it unless Somebody asked me a question, and I go do some research, try to answer the question. Or, you know, uh, if I'm on, like share these stories on online, you know, I, I like like to do that sometimes. But uh, I, I can remember things just by having all this wrote down, and I, it kind of honors the deer. Would Would you ever use it like throughout the season? Did you ever just like go back, you know, a few years and be like, okay, this this time last year, I, I was really finding them on you know, these red oaks or, or whatever the case may be. Did, did you ever use it in that manner to where it kind of helped you in the current deer season? Oh, yes, I definitely did, especially areas I had hunted for multiple years, you know, hunting the same area. I would I, I would go through that. I, I can go through this book where I just found those kills for you, and I can find the times and the dates and, and see where I killed that. But more than that, the other records I can go back and look at is tells where I had sightings at, you know, Kills are just a small percentage of, of what the sightings were. You know, and the sightings, I had deer come in. I didn't get a shot at it. Deer come in. 
a mist or whatever, but they still come in. And if they had a reason to come in then, they might have one now. If the situation is the same. So definitely I would go back and research stuff. When I wasn't out hunting, actually hunting, I would look at it like that. But uh, but I'm, I'm into daily in-season scouting. That's probably the main thing that helped me the most was putting in two to four hours every day. I was hunting on the ground, searching for the perfect place to set up, have a collision course with a deer, you know, and, and I hunt just scout with open mind and, and uh, hunt with confidence, basically what it is. You find where you, where you think to really work at the time. And those deer, they're changing all the time. You know, they, they don't stay on a, uh, a yearly pattern. Their patterns change from week to week, day to day sometimes. What they're doing, doing two days ago, not necessarily what they're going to be doing at the time you want to go try to get on one. Yeah. And you just have to stay with it in that Daily in-season scouting. I mean, you can't do it on small areas. And I notice where you got your 15 acres now you just purchased, and I'm real happy for you. That's what we live on. We live on 14 acres here, so I can relate a little bit to that. But <laughs> but on a small place, you'll run them off. I mean, right. they'll catch you real quick. But when, when you're hunting national forests and wildlife management areas and stuff like that, national wildlife refuges, man, they get thousands and thousands of acres, and you, you can hit a different drainage every day where you had never been, maybe nobody's been. You walk down one side of the creek looking for, for potential setups and then cross over and come back down, you know, just trying to take advantage of the most sign you can find at the time. And uh, that's that's what really pays off big time. Yeah. Hey, before we get before we get too far into to hunting strategy, I did want to ask, you know, with all those volumes of, of memories uh, uh, written down there, I'm guessing you, you, there's bound to be a few favorites tucked in there along the way. Do you have any any of those you want to share with us? Any favorite hunting stories from? Boy, it, it, it would really be hard to pick one out. <laughs> I mean, I could do it better by seeing a picture. I, I tell you, one buck I killed. It was it was late season, and uh, I was hunting with a, my Cadian Woods uh, recurve. I think it was red, probably the last two days or three days of the season. And but I was there. I was hunting. Had nut all oaks in it. And nut all oaks dropped late in the year. That they would drop in the, up into February. Sometimes, mostly in December, was the best time for them in this particular area I was hunting. But uh, it was a big, big area, and I'd I'd been hunting. I'd made a a morning hunt and a midday hunt, and took a little break, and I was scouting some for some nut alls in a big open hardwood bottom. And uh, I looked up. My, and so of course this was during the later stage of the rut too and uh, I looked up and I saw a doe running across in front of me and uh, and she stopped and when she stopped she was just straight out in front of me and she was pretty good ways out there and then this buck come up he was right behind her and he come running and stuck his nose under her tail there when she had her tail up and when he did I was just instinctively uh, I, I got a, I, when I saw the doe running I got an air off out of my quiver and on my string and I, I turned turned into shooting position. I had to turn to put on my left side, and I waited. That buck run up when he when he he stopped. It was a, it was just an instinctive movement. I just raised my bow up, and they had two vines parallel out about ten yards in front of me, and I had to squat. I could just don't know that you figure all this out without thinking about it, but I knew I had to drop down a little bit to shoot between those two parallel vines to make my. Uh, my air drop in, uh, you know, it's a long shot and it's going to have to drop to it. 
I squatted down and just one motion, I just pulled back and anchored and released. And I watched that arrow go through them vines and it, it had a big arch to it. It came down and hit that deer right behind the shoulder. And boy, he, he just exploded. I watched him run and then, anyway, uh, I seen I seen it after he started running, he'd run away. I could see him in those open woods for a while. And it was like something that I couldn't figure out what it was. It was like an explosion that happened. And I said, what the heck was that? And then I lost him. I didn't see him after that. But anyway, I had a real good landmark where I shot him. So I hung some toilet paper where I was standing. And I, I take, I'm, I was 6'3", then about 6'1". Now I was really enough. But I, I, I took yard steps. And I <coughs> stepped off 40 long steps to where he was standing. And I couldn't believe it. I said, I can't shoot a deer that far. I had trouble hitting him at 20 yards. And so I, I, I step, went step back to where I'd hung the top of where I shot from. So I got 40 again. So I shot that deer at 40 yards with my recurve, which is unheard of, especially for me. And then I started going to him. And where the explosion thing I had seen was where he crossed us. It had like a ditch. It was full of water. It was kind of low, hardwood bottom land. And it was a drainage ditch. It was filled up with rainwater. When he hit that water, it was just like a big explosion. All that water went there, and I lost him. And I found him about 20 yards past there. And he was an eight-point late season, eight-point. So that, that was a good memory. Yeah. I hadn't posted before about him yet. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to post one already, but talk about one I just posted. But, uh, yeah, Emma's story is a great memory. I've killed does and uh, enjoyed the memory more than I did to have killed bucks, you know. Those bucks, they can be easy to kill once you see them. They are, they're not like a doe. They're not as spooky as a doe. Them song guns, you'll see them out there, and they'll stand out there for 30 minutes and not move. And once they decide everything is cool, you know, they'll flip their tail. They don't, they, walk, they don't look to the left. They don't look to the right. They walk a straight line. Where are they going? Because they're satisfied they're safe. But a darn doe, you know, she moves more than daylight hours than a buck does. And she's raised a fawn, teaching the ropes where to eat and how to eat and how to travel and how to navigate and all that. And, they're a lot more active in the daylight, and they become exposed to hunters a lot more than, than bucks do. And, and uh, they shy, man. They they look and <laughs> sneak around on tiptoes looking behind every tree for a booger, you know? No, oh, yeah. So I killed some does that was great experiences. I killed a spike one time. I called him Kung Fu, man. He was <laughs> killed. He'd duck and dodge, break airs and everything. I found, after about three encounters with him, <laughs> <laughs> I finally got the, the best of him on him. About the third or fourth encounter, I called him Kung Fu because he dodged and ducked and broke out. <laughs> now, now I, I know you've you've told this story on some other podcasts, and I think you've at some point you shared it on your Instagram account there too. But I, I, it's too good not to share again, and I think it really uh, speaks volumes to to just how seriously you you've taken your deer hunting over the years, and uh, that's the story where you had to. I don't remember what state you were in, but you had to bring your own tree to the hunt in order to be able to hey, hunt yeah. the spot you wanted to hunt. Yeah, I feel that one. Uh, yeah, I was hunting at a, at a, it's a National Wildlife Refuge now, but it was, at the time it was a private hunting club and it was on the Mississippi River in Louisiana. And it was a big, 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 long curving bend in the river there. The river went from north to south by going east going west and then back to the east. And it was all a big sandbar. And it was, all it had in it was cottonwood and willow trees, and they were all saplings-like, you know, maybe maybe 
10 or 12, 15 foot high, something like that. Nothing you could climb on. Well, this was early in the season, and and uh, I couldn't find any oak trees. And I walked myself to death looking for oak trees, and I couldn't find any. And uh, so I decided to go out on that sandbar. And then I was amazed at all the sign out there. It, those tracks showed up so easy in the sand. It was unbelievable. And But they didn't have anything to climb on. And I'm not a ground hunter. I, I, I feel exposed sitting on the ground. I feel like the deer have the huge advantage over me. I like to hunt elevated. So I didn't have a tree, so I, I went and got me a tree. I went out to a different area and found a cottonwood tree about the size of a telephone pole. No, I didn't have a chainsaw. I just took my axe and chopped it down. And I cut the top out where it was 25 foot long. I, I, I cut that cottonwood tree down and I hooked it. I had a 74 Bronco and I hooked, it, hooked that tree up on it. I drug it down the road and out on that sandbar. And I picked a place out. It had a little cover around it and everything where they'd be comfortable walking through. And the sign showed that we're walking through there. And uh, I got me a shovel and I had a camp there and I found an old piece of shovel at the camp and I dug me a hole in that sandbar out there and I had to dig down about waist deep to hit hard clay bottom and the hole was probably five or six foot in diameter because it kept caving in on me. <laughs> anyway, I got that big hole there and I got a friend of mine, a hunting friend of mine to help me and we put, I had a rack on top of my Bronco and we put the little end up on top of the rack and then I had the butt of the pole at the base of the hole, and and Charles Lee started. He balanced the the uh, the tree, the pole, I should say. And I backed my bronco up and kind of stood it up and dropped it off down that hole. Then I went out and got some gravel out the gravel road and, uh, and put it on the tarp in the back of my hotel, gave my bronco and come back and backfield with sand and gravel and packed it down. And and uh, I was going to hang a stand up there. And, and Charles Lee said, "Warren, said you're going to look naked up there in that bare pole." Because there wasn't nothing else around there, you know, it was kind of weird. And uh, I said, I said, he said, I said, well, let me cut a cut a top and tie it up here. So I cut a had a cottonwood pole and had a willow top. I cut the willow <laughs> out, climbed up there with my spurs and tied it on there, and uh, and killed a spike out of it the first time I hunted it. But uh, a lot of people saw that pole afterwards. They, they said, man, where'd that come from? They thought the guy was crazy. And uh, Fellow asked me, he said, man, you went to all that trouble for a spike? I said, hey, man, I'd have done it for a dough. That ain't no big deal. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. I, I, like I said, I've heard the story before, but I, it was too good uh, too good not to have you share it on here. That's, that's... Well, that's just another memory. I'd like to say, every kill is a memory. Every shot is a memory. A lot of them are bad. But <laughs> and I value all of them just the same. Yeah. Now, have have you ever thought of you got all this stuff already written down? Have you ever thought about compiling it into an actual book? You know, my wife has encouraged me to do a book for twenty five, thirty years, <laughs> and I just I'm, I did a video. I did the video deal. I still got a video camera in ninety one, and I got enough footage. I produced a, a, a video of half of kills with a compound bow and half of with a, with a traditional bow. And I sold the devil out of that thing. It started off as VHS, and then when VHS went down the tube, I went ahead and converted to uh, DVD, and and I sold just as many with DVD as I did with the VHS. But in fact, it got people still want to buy it, but it got so old, I got embarrassed about trying to sell it. <laughs> so I discontinued it, you know. But I made four other, four or five other trad boat videos too that I sold, but. 
it, it, it was great. I enjoyed a lot. You know, it, it, it was a great experience. Met a lot of people and everything. But a book is different. You know, I got all the information, got all the stories wrote and everything. It's just putting it in order and compiling it and everything. What I like to tell people is, is what I share is my book. You know, it don't cost you nothing. And yeah. I started sharing so many stories. I shared pictures on Instagram. I'm starting to share stories on Facebook. And I tell everybody, that's my book. You just got to wait for each chapter. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I'm just real intimidated by doing a book. I wouldn't even know where to start. Yeah. And then they afraid nobody want to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that'd be a problem, but yeah, I understand it. It's a a big undertaking for sure. But so let's 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 dive into a, a little hunting strategy here. I know you've already touched on some here and there, but I guess we'll just start with you know you're you're one of just a, few, a handful of hunters that that I know or that I've talked to that focuses pretty much strictly on what you call feed trees. So how how did uh, I guess, how did that get started? Is that, I mean, pretty much how you started deer hunting from the beginning? And, uh, you know, what, what's the your your reasoning behind that, I guess? Well, that's where I found the most sign. You know, I'm a sign hunter. I, I, I like to scout with an open mind and take advantage of the available sign. And uh, all my scouting, I, I saw more to set up on, on feed trees than I did anything else, you know. And trails, you know, that's a, that's probably the first thing people want to hunt when they first start hunting is trails. Well, trails are low percentage hunts. I mean, it's a, if I get on this one, the deer going to be on that one. If I get on that one, the deer's going to be on this one kind of thing. And it's really, it's, it's low percentage. And, and I would, it didn't take me long to figure out you're, you're limited about the amount of times you can hunt during the season. And each hunt is very important. So you want your hunt to be as high percentage for you as you possibly have it. And all the scouting I did and my learning and it's what I noticed is saying, I narrowed down to the best thing to do is food. I mean, they, they're going to eat and they're going to come to feed. And uh, if, I, if I try to catch them traveling to the feed, uh, it might come a different way, you know. Uh, down here in the south where we at, the bedding areas aren't as prominent and obvious as they are up in the north and the Midwest. A deer can bed just about anywhere down in here with a cutover we have. And it just made sense for me to, to find the food source and sit there and wait for them to come. I and mean, they're going to come to it, especially if it's showing a lot of sign. And all sign isn't equal. Some sign is a lot more obvious than other sign and, 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 and a lot better. And it makes sense a lot of times for where the, where the feed's at as much as anything, you know. And, it, and it, a lot of places I have no idea where the deer are coming from, so... All I do is set up downwind of the food source and just wait on them. Of course, it's not the only way I've hunted. I, I've hunted creek crossing. I've hunted. I could I could get on that list in my journal and, and probably name me thirty or forty different methods that I've used to to kill deer. And uh, I might already have. I don't remember. <laughs> but uh, I mean, but especially during the early season, you know, later in the season, travel areas and flows and areas and funnel areas and peace points and all that, or the transition area lines and stuff like that. It can be really good once the bucks start traveling a lot. But early season and then even in later seasons, early, real early and real late season, if you got a food source, uh, that's, that's what you want to hunt, you know. Yeah. A lot of guys, corn, I mean, that's a food source, but 
it's always in the same place, and the deer catch on real quick, and they're going to use it, but it's going to be after dark. I mean, it's hard, hard to kill on corn in a small area. They just uh, they just figure you out too quick. But a food source, other than that, that, a natural food source in the early part of the season and the very late part of the season, man, it's, it's, it's gold. It's, it's dynamite. What what kind of sign exactly are you looking for that that's gonna gonna make you stop and say, okay, this this is the tree here. I need to I need to be under. I want a tree to take my breath away from me. And it's not gonna happen early season, the first couple of weeks of season, but about the third fourth week of the season, it's gonna start to have accumulation sign that you just can't ignore. And what I'm looking for, I'm I'm walking, I'm going from tree to tree, scouting on my two to four hours a day to scouting. I'm looking at every oak tree I can find on a drainage, and, and, and I'm traveling fast. I'm not trying to sneak up on deer, see deer, and take advantage of stalking or anything. I'm, I'm trying to find a good place to set up. When I walk up on a tree, and the first thing I notice is the ground under the crown, that, that, that crown of the tree and the drip line, everything inside that drip line. If it's hot, it's going to be disturbed. I call it disturbance and you look at that you stand at the edge of that drip line and you look inside that drip line ground's going to be all tore up leaves going to be crunched you're going to have uh, acorn hulls on there you're going to have deer droppings on there you might have a rub or two on some little saplings around there you look outside the drip line i mean it's that it's that distinct that drip line is it's like Daylight and dark. You look outside that drip line, and the ground is totally undisturbed. It's like nothing's ever walked on it. And you walk under that tree, and you see all that sign. And then, if it, if it's the right time of the day, you're gonna have squirrels up in there. You're gonna have blue jays or, or blackbirds, depending on the late season. You'll have blackbirds up in the nut all trees, knocking the acorns out. But you'll have a lot of activity in trees. I've seen coons up in there getting those acorns. It's just it's a tree. That makes you want to hunt it instead of you making yourself want to hunt it. When you find that, hopefully you got all your stuff with you and you're ready to climb right then and there. Not run to your truck or vehicle and get your stuff and come back and set up on it. They're going to come to it, hopefully before dark. So you've mentioned several times the these drainages are walking, you know, walking creeks and stuff, looking looking for these feed trees. Is that pretty much where you focus your efforts? Is on these drainages? Do you ever? Walk the ridges, or did you pretty much stick with those bottoms? I've, I've killed on the ridges, but then you got to deal with that crazy wind factor. You know, you got all that wind swirling on those ridge tops and all that. And I, I really like to stay away from the hills. My, my bread and butter's always been down in the creek bottoms and stuff. Deer like to travel parallel to creeks anyway. Uh, they just it's just natural for them to follow those creeks and take advantage of the food sources along, and then they show up a lot of sign across. I've done a lot of scouting in creeks. We have some dry, sandy drainages with pots of holes of water in the sand every now and then. And a lot of times I'll get down those creeks and I'll walk the sand looking at the sign, and you'll find sign where it's crossing the creek, all these tracks in the sand going from one bank to the other. And then you, you climb up that bank and you go backtrack and try to find what the what they're coming from or going to and a lot of times it's going to be a primary feed tree at one end or the other now are you when you find these these hot feed trees are are you taking anything else into consideration like i mean are you looking around and making sure there's good cover nearby or i guess how do you differentiate whether or not 
you know, that sign's being made at night or whether that's that's a place they may be feeding during daylight hours? Well, you know, a lot of the areas I hunt, any, any place can be a bed in there. So I, I, I don't have, a lot of times I don't have any idea where the deer are going to come be coming from or if they're going to come there in the day, wait till dark to come or come in the daylight or what. But it, the hotter the tree is, those deer want to take advantage of it and, and beat the other deer to it. So a lot of times you, you'll, you'll have deer, that's like in the morning, you make a morning hunt, so if I'm going in before dark, you'll run deer off. But there might be other deer that hadn't got there yet, they'll come in and then bucks will come in later in the morning so they don't have to compete with the does for that. So I, I, I have never been concerned with it. I find a tree in most of the areas I hunted, uh, like I said, they could be bedding anywhere. I just get downwind of that tree, try to get about, 10, 12, 15 yards downwind of it. If I can't do that, I'll get in the tree itself if possible. Yeah. So if if you're approaching, say, a new tract of, of land that you want to you wanna scout or, or that you're going to hunt, uh, kind of, I guess, how do you get that initial starting point? Um, is there any specific thing you're looking for when you first go in to start, to start looking for these hot trees? Yeah. If it's, like I said, a management area or something, first thing I want to do is ride all the roads just looking at, looking at the habitat from the road. Of course, I got a map with me and a topo map, too, most of the time. Uh, I mean, an aerial map. I got a map and a topo map and an aerial map, a road map, or whatever, for like a wildlife management area. And I, I'll ride all the roads and I just, I mean, you can't judge judge the hunt potential from the road, but it gives you a lay of the land. And then you got different types of terrain and habitat in different parts of that area. And I find something that interests me. And then I, I get down and I kind of find a way to grid it off. I have some boundaries I'm looking at, like a creek on the backside or a pipeline or a power line or, or an old road or a logging road or something like that. I'll get some boundaries and I'll dive off in there and, and, and try to find more detail about it. But that's usually after I check the creeks out, though. I, 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 I got ahead of myself. Basically, you get a lay of the land, general look at it off your roads, then you find where the creeks at on your maps and I hit those creeks and walk those creeks out look for potential areas and then and then uh, of course you're going to be some of those creeks you're going to have to go through ridges primary uh, main ridges plus finger ridges to get out in there too so you're going to be learning and looking at stuff like that too but just, just walk and look man you just I, I can't tell you how many rubber boots I've wore out <laughs> just just in season daily scouting and just trying to learn as much as you can about it and so and just look for the potential. Uh, it is, you know, I've hunted, I've hunted stuff that I would want to be willing to bet my house that I was going to have deer come in and I see a thing. You know, you just, you just can't control those deer. You just got to try to be where they're going to be, where you think they're going to be. Right. So, speaking of that, how many times once you you found a, a good hot feed tree that they're obviously hitting. You know, how many sits will you will you give that before you just before you pull out and say and move on to the next one? <laughs> uh, it's, it depends. It depends on how many areas I found it looks good. How many spots in in a general area that looks good, or how much confidence I have. Usually, I, back in the old days when I was really running and gunning and doing good, I give it one chance. I hunted, and that's I was probably wrong, but but I had so much. Scouting two to four hours a day, I might find 10 places I think I'd kill a deer back in the good days. You know, and so if I set up on one that morning or something, and I don't see anything, well, I'm going to get out and scout, and I'm going to hunt another place that evening. 
And then the next morning, I'm one of the other places I found that I think is good for a morning hunt. But uh, usually, I, I give it one shot. Hit, shoot, miss, hit, kill, or whatever. But uh, I might hunt it again that, that week or uh, uh, next week or something other. But doubtful. I was pretty a one-shot deal. <laughs> I'm not like that anymore, hunting real small parts of places. And I got... I got preset places that I hunt, you know, just small acres and stuff. I, I, I do hunt it for the years. I'm nowhere to expect the movement to be. And like I say, things have changed a lot, but I, I like to talk about when it was the best for me. Yeah. Now, have you found that these these hot feed trees, do they tend to be ones that'll that'll be hot again in subsequent seasons? I mean, does it seem like there's just certain trees that the deer prefer? or is it more like, you know, they may be hot this year and, and not hot again for four or five years? What have, what well, have we seen? You know, you got two classes of trees. You got the white oak family and red oak family. The white oak family is not as consistent uh, for bearing fruit and dropping as the red oak family is, I found. And uh, the, the red oak, you know, they, they say it, it, it takes two years to make an acorn, and that, I'm sure that's true, but. You can drop an acorn. You can have two years worth of acorns on at the same time. You can have the one-year-old acorns and two-year-old acorns is dropping at the same time. So you can have consecutive years that it'll drop acorns, even though it takes two years for it to grow and, and drop. And on a white oak tree, it only takes one year for them to to, to mature and drop. But uh, they don't seem to be as consistent dropping as a red oak. And I don't know if that's the reason because or what, but... Uh, I've hunted I've hunted uh, red oak trees that year after year the same one you know and, and done good and I had I found a, a beautiful white oak tree this is just an example it was one of those places you had to really want to be there to go I mean it was hard to get there it was a long ways and it was difficult you had to go through hills and ravines and all kinds of stuff to get to it and it was on a creek and it was a big white oak tree on the on a high bluff on the edge of a dry sandy creek and I, when I found it the first time. All the all the sand underneath that tree down in that dry drainage bed was just looked like deer disc tracks under it. that thing was tracked up so much. Acorns of rain and all that. And I, I set up on it and I killed a deer on it. Went back the next year, killed another one. Checked it the next ten years and never had another acre. I mean, just huh. real inconsistent. It was yeah. a great place to hunt. Nobody there. I don't know if anybody ever seen them trees or not. And it was on public land too. But uh, it's, it's just inconsistent. But yes, I have killed two years in a row out of the same tree a couple of times. Kind of along those same lines, have you found that, that certain trees uh, seem to produce about the same time every year? For, uh, in other words, say you find a, a water oak that, that's dropping early. Does it seem like that, that water oak drops early consistently or is it again is it just kind of random from year to year to, depending on other factors yeah I think they each have their individual drop time I, I really believe that and uh, and and another factor that my hunting buddy one of my hunting buddies figured out he says the elevation makes a lot of difference on the drop times too and what he found out and he did this I, I took advantage of it a couple of times when he would find a really hot tree, he would check the elevation on a topo map or a topo map, whatever how you call it. And then he'd see what that elevation was, and he'd find other areas with the same elevation and go find oak trees, same uh, 
same type of oak tree, having dropping acres at the same time. Now that was that was a pretty good tool there, and he used it a good bit. Now, with you scouting like this on the fly, kind of, well, you say you might hunt a morning and then get down and and scout for for two or three hours. Uh, I mean, were there ever times where you just you just don't find what you're looking for and end up scouting till dark and never actually getting in a tree and burning a hunt? Yeah, I drove six hours to hunt one time. I met up there with my friend, uh, a large farmer. Everybody knows me, probably knows him from, from me. And uh, we met up there about six hour ride from my house, or five hours probably, in a big national wildlife refuge up in the northeast corner of Louisiana. And uh, we met up and we walked for eight hours and didn't find anything we wanted to hunt. I got my truck and come back home. I wasn't going to waste my time another day. I didn't have it. And a lot of times I, I won't. If I start scouting and and I won't I won't just climb and hope I used to be like that I won't climb and hope I just scout until dark and then they don't find nothing just take off somewhere else the next day you know I, I didn't like to waste a hunt I was only limited to so many hunts a year and I wanted to climb and and expect instead of climb and hope yeah I, I'm I'm trying to do a better job of that. I've, I've, there's been plenty of times where I've just climbed and hoped, like you said there. But uh, yeah, I'm trying to do a better job of of staying on that that fresh sign and uh, you know only only getting in a tree if I really think I can kill something there. It, hey, I remember what I was going to tell you about the oak tree on the, on the drop times and everything. Yeah, you know the deer they they the one that designate the primary feed tree for the area. Yeah, I don't do it. The deer do it by going on it and. And uh, I've seen trees last two days as a primary tree. And then I had one tree I killed on and, and went back like 16 days later. I could go back and check my book. It would take me a little while to find it. It's the exact day, but it was about 16 days later. I was back in the same area, and I said, let me go check on that tree. Went in there, and it was good, and I killed another deer on it. Same tree during the same time period. Which that's, that's phenomenal. They usually don't last that long. Usually they'll last last uh, Five or six days, maybe a week at the most, you know. But those deer, I found they—they, they, you know. And they, I'm not a biologist or nothing like that. I'm just spending a lot of time in the woods. But they, those deer consider an acre like we consider a tomato. When the tomatoes start first coming in, we we uh we real we're not really picky on what we'll eat. You know, we'll we'll eat just just any kind of tomatoes halfway ripe or something. We sort of prefer to get a tomato. The deer the same way, but once the deer, I mean, once the tomatoes get prime, where they perfect, we're real selective. We don't want the, just a tomato. We want the very best tomato out of all those tomatoes we got. But the deer's the same way. When the acres first start dropping, they'll take any acre they can get. But once all the trees start dropping, and and you got, people say, well, I don't know which one to hunt. They all got acres. Those deer know which ones are best, and they know how long it's going to be the best, and they know one another one's going to be better. So they're steady changing, and it's just up for us to find that primary tree that they've designated as for a high percentage chunk for ourselves, you know? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Now, I, I know you mentioned earlier that, you know, you during in, in your notes there, all the notes that you take, you know, you keep track of, of what kind of tree you, you killed the deer under. Do you have some totals there that you can pull, pull out for us? On, on what trees kill the most deer out of? Yeah, just which, which trees, you know, how many deer you've killed under different different kinds of trees. Oh, the different, different type of trees. How many yeah. under different types? Yeah. 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 Yeah, I've got that right here. Give me just a second. On water oaks, 
I've killed 60 with a gun and 53 with a bow. On red oaks, I've killed 17 with a bow. Now, cow oaks, which is a swamp chestnut, killed 13 with a bow and one with a gun. And then nut alls, I've killed 25 with a bow and four with a gun. White oaks, pure white oak trees that everybody loves so much, I've killed 13. <laughs> and Schumard oaks, I've killed two. Cherry bark oaks, I've killed five. And uh, that's pretty much it for the oak trees. Yeah. So, wow. Water, water oak then, by by far, has been your best producer. Is that just, I mean, is there just a lot more of those where you're hunting, or do they just seem to prefer those when they're dropping? Yeah, I think I think area-wise down here, we have more water oak trees than we do any any other variety of tree. I mean, they're just more prominent than any of them. And they have a, I've killed deer and water oak trees from, from October the 1st all the way through to the end of December. So you'll find a water oak tree somewhere still dropping if you look hard enough. Now, something else uh, I mentioned while we're talking about that, people don't understand how hunting areas has been so important to me. I call an area like a flow area or deer just kind of wander through an area. It's, uh, it looks like they're wandering, but they're taking advantage of any kind of cover or elevation that keeps them hidden. You look through the woods, it, it looks like it, all the same in there, but you got different parts of that woods that you can't see because it's a little bit thicker or the elevation is a little lower or something like that. And deer, I found, have learned how to use these flow areas to, to kind of sift their way through an area and stay as hidden as possible. Well, I, 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 my areas consist of flow areas, now I'll describe that. Funnels, real pinch points, uh, just a just a general area like and everything, but hunting areas, I've killed 66 with a gun and 46 with a bow. Uh, so, you know, I had none at all on, on just oak trees. I've killed more like that way than I have anyway, I believe. Okay. Now, I know you guys open a little later than like we do here in, in Georgia, but uh, have you killed any over any soft mast, any persimmons or muscadines, anything like that? Yes, I have. I've killed seven on, on the honey locusts and uh, six hundred persimmons. Okay, no muscadine kills, huh? The muscadines have dropped out before our season opens. Ah, okay, I got you. Yeah, I, I found them in September. Places just look awesome, and the sand, sandy drainage just coming out of the hills and everything. Uh, it just, uh, just unbelievable sign. And the time October first gets there, they over with it. <laughs> I got you. Well, what just uh, I've had you on here for well over an hour. I, I guess kind of one of my final questions is, uh, man, can you can you share with us the secret of of man still being able to to get out there and uh, put in the miles and get in these trees and and kill deer at you know seven? What do you say, seventy seven years old this year? Yes, I think I'm the oldest saddle hunter that anybody's ever heard. Of. That's right. Yeah, I meant to ask you about that. Yeah, you are hunting out of a saddle, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've been. This will be my fifth season coming up out of saddle. But uh, yeah, I, I, on the boards and saddle hunt places and all that. Uh, I've people talk about being in their fifties saddle hunt and all that, you know. And uh, but uh, I've mentioned how my age and everything, and I never seen anybody say they was older than I was. <laughs> saying that I'm I'm the oldest, but I'm the oldest I know of is still in a saddle, but. Yeah, I, I, it's always been important for me to stay in physical condition, good physical condition. Uh, 
hunting has always been a really important part of my life. I used to schedule my whole life around it, you know, and uh, I found out fatigue of sending you to the house quicker than anything will. So you know, I always wanted to be as good a shape as I could, be able to cover ground and climb trees and stuff like that. And it's kind of my, when I wasn't hunting, I was always in in some kind of gym working out. And I like to walk a lot during the off season and just been important. You know, I never smoked, never drank, just lived a clean lifestyle. And, uh, a lot of luck. I had some heart problems when I was 58. I had a couple of heart attacks and mm-hmm. survived those. And, and uh, just, just just trying to hang in there and just keep going. You know, I still have an interest for it. I'm not as tunnel visioned as I once was, but time and gravity takes care of that. You know? but, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I, I think we all uh, kind of evolve as uh, as deer hunters as as we get older and longer. We're you know the the priorities are still like you said that the drive's still there to hunt, but it your priorities change. I guess as far as why you're out there and, and what you're hoping to accomplish. Absolutely, uh, I, I do have something I'd like to share that might help some people. Yeah, absolutely. What I always do, and I've been doing this for years. Uh, September the first was my start shooting out of a tree, practicing for the season. Like I say, our season starts October the first. That gives me a month of climbing. And sitting in strand, stand and being acclimated to being elevated. And uh, I mean, when you quit hunting, usually in in the January, it's all over with, and you don't you don't climb a tree, or you don't sit and stand until October the first, or in y'all's case, I think September the fifteenth or something like that. And, and and it's a big transition from going from not doing that to start doing it all of a sudden. And uh, it's oh, yeah. hot at the year, and and uh, you, you're gonna. It, the bottom line is. I always drill a tree and put boats in it, and probably at least five days out of the week, I go climb that tree with airs and have a stand up there and have targets scattered out around from from five to to twenty five yards, and climb up there and shoot all my airs and climb down and pick them up. I can't get my wife to do it. Up <laughs> <laughs> yeah. climb back up and shoot another round of a couple of dozen airs and climb down, and do like three sets for that. And uh, not only are you getting used to climbing a tree and getting physically fit for climbing a tree, you're getting familiar with your equipment. You're sitting on a stand. You're getting familiar with that. You're getting familiar with shooting out of a stand. And, and uh, by the time the season opens, you've been doing that for a month, and it seems like you've been hunting, doing the same thing you'd be doing if you was hunting for a month. So you, you just hit the, hit the ground or climb the tree, and you're ready to go, and you don't have that two-week uh crossover period where you're trying to get in shape for that. That's, that's always been a real important head start for me. Yeah, that's that's great advice. I'm, this is actually going to be my first year hunting out of a saddle. So I've been uh, I've been climbing in trees. I went out to a local wildlife management area here a week or two ago for my first, you know, I just climbed up in the tree and, and hung out there for the last few hours of daylight watching the clear cut just to see if I seen any deer come out. But as much as anything, it was just a, you know, to get used to, to climbing and hanging in that thing and, and just getting a feel for it. And then, you know, doing it here at the house, shooting and, and all that as well. Cause it's, it's definitely, it's, it's different. It's, it's a lot different than, than sitting in a climber. You know, I've hunted pretty much my whole life out of a, out of a climber. So this is, the saddle is definitely a change, but. Yeah, you, you, you know, your first day you hunt back, the first day of the season you hunt, you might have a chance that's your best buck ever. And you want to, 
you want to have the opportunity to shoot like you've been shooting for a month already, you know? That's not, right. Not like first day. That's right. Yep. Work the kinks out before season gets there. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, hey, Warren, man, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming on and, and spending time with me and, and talking deer hunting. And uh, for those that that w- wouldn't mind or want to keep up with you on social media and kind of follow along with your deer season uh, and, and maybe see some more of these memories that you're sharing, how can they uh, how can they do that? Well, on social media, I just use my name, Warren Womack. So on Instagram, I'm Warren Womack. Uh, on Facebook, I'm Warren Womack. And uh, on on uh, my YouTube channel, I got about 250-some small, short video clips on YouTube. Most of them are just show and tell with kills and stuff, but I'm Warren Womack there, too. So if you remember my name and know how to spell <laughs> it, find me. There you go. And we'll we'll put links to those in the show notes. And I'll have to actually, I don't, I don't guess I've checked out your YouTube channel, so I'll have to, I'll have to give that a look and see some of your videos. So. Just a disclaimer on my YouTube. When I first started posting those uh, videos on there, I was on the lowest dial-up internet known to mankind. <laughs> and I had to edit those things down to less than a minute and and, uh, and use the poorest quality available. I couldn't load them up into good quality. And uh, it'd take me about three hours to, to upload a 60-second video. So oh. quality... The uh, the material is there, but the quality is not. So just bear with it. And understand that they do get better as I've <laughs> got better internet connections. There you go. Well, Warren, again, I, I appreciate it. And as always, man, I enjoyed uh, enjoyed talking with you. Well, thank you. you know, I love to talk hunting, and uh, you're a great person to talk with. Well, I appreciate that. All right, guys, that wraps up our interview with Warren Womack. Uh, Thanks so much for checking out this episode of the Deer Season 365 podcast. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the show. You know, you can find us on all the popular podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and and several more. So about anywhere you could listen uh, listen to podcasts, you should be able to find us there. Or you can just go to DeerAssociation.com slash podcast and subscribe directly from our website. Uh, Hey, we'd also love it if you take just a second to leave us a five-star rating or a written review. You know, those both help us uh, climb the the podcasting charts and be more visible to, uh, to future listeners. So we would appreciate any support you could give us there. For more information about the National Deer Association, you can visit our website, again, at DeerAssociation.com. From there, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Hey, you can become a member. And don't forget about that podcast promo code that we talked about at the beginning of the show to get you a little bit of a discount on an annual membership and that free NDA hat. So be sure to take advantage of that. And uh, hey, just enjoy some of our several hundred articles of, of free content right there on our website covering everything from hunting strategy to food plots, habitat improvement, um, deer management, you name it. Uh, if it's deer hunting or deer management related, we got some good content right there on our website available to you. So check that out. And of course, you can always find us on all the popular social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Deer Association. So again, thanks for listening to the Deer Season 365 podcast, the podcast where deer season never ends.